Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, this is Christian Sager. Christian, where do you stand on uh, mass extinction? Oh, I think it's a good thing. Yeah? Yeah, just sort of a, a regular sort of cleaning out of the, the, the lint uh, mm-hmm. catcher of, uh, of uh, civilization, exactly. of cosmos. It's Earth changing its oil every couple million years. Okay. All right. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about mass extinctions. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, we're going to talk about uh, it in relation to Annalie Newitz, who used to be the editor-in-chief over at io9, and she's now at uh, Gizmodo, both under the Gawker banner, I believe. Uh, and she has this great book called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the five mass extinctions that have already happened on Earth. We've already gone through five of them before mm-hmm. human beings were even walking around. The sixth one that we're pretty much with no doubt living in right now. And then what nuances and some of the other articles that we researched for this episode recommendations are for surviving the sixth mass extinction that's coming up on us. Right, because they can be survived uh, based on the ones we've seen so far. You have Mm -hmm. uh, such creatures as, say, the earthworm that's a champion of surviving mass extinction events. Exactly, yeah. And uh, let's keep in mind that for a a mass extinction, what qualifies as one is that 75% of all species go extinct in less than two million years. So that leaves, you know, 25%, <laughs> which earthworms would fall under. There's also a really interesting creature that uh, Anna Lee talks about in her book called the Listosaurus, and we'll get to there. Um, but I should qualify this by saying that uh, last year, uh, fall of 2014, for our How Stuff Works video channel, I interviewed An- Anna Lee about this book, and you can go and watch that episode on our HSW channel right now. It's about 20 minutes long, and I get to talk with her personally about the book and her ideas, and she's much more eloquent and steeped in this material than than we are. But this is a fun discussion, I think, for us to kind of piggyback on and bring some of our How Stuff Works knowledge to the table as well. Indeed. And if you want to watch that video, I'll make sure that there is a link to it in the landing page for this episode at StuffToBuildYourMind.com. So, okay, we established what a mass extinction is. Uh, what are the two basic causes for mass extinction? Well, there's usually inanimate physical world events, right? Volcanoes, climate changes, outer space debris. We all think of this massive, a- massive asteroid striking the planet and killing all the dinosaurs, right? That's right, yeah. basically the one that everybody kind of imagines. Uh, but there's also long-term changes to biological life that are affecting the ecosystems around us and killing off species. Uh, and we are responsible for some of those. And then in those five previous ones, which we'll go through shortly, you know, th- there was a lot of uh, versions of invasive species that were destroying habitats and, and subsequently the species that lived within them. Yeah, I mean, it's always important to keep in mind that, yes, humans and, and our and various other creatures live on Earth, but we, we live in a very slim portion of the atmosphere here on Earth. And then you can break that down even further, especially, you know, depending on the, the, the particular species, very small pockets of even that layer of atmosphere, depending on climate and, and environment. So uh, it becomes less of a, we are the creatures who live on this planet, as we are the creatures who live in 
often very small areas of this planet mm-hmm. uh, and the um, in, in, in areas of this planet that uh, are susceptible to uh, catastrophic change. And keep in mind, too, that these environmental changes we're talking about take sometimes a billion years. Yeah. Like these are it's the 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 time that these go through. It's unfathomable. I don't know about you, but from my human consciousness, I have a hard time. Once we get to a million years, I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's it's all, you know, uh, gray terrain after that. But it, these are huge amounts of time. And that's why we're, we're fairly confident that we can say that we're living in one right now. Because keep in mind, they're two million years long. So uh, it's happening at an incredibly slow pace to our human lives. Yeah, it's a lot easier to comprehend that space collision situation where something smacks into the earth and yeah, knocks right. everything out or, a, you know, the, the volcano go, that's uh, erupting in the background of that dinosaur illustration in our, you know, childhood paleontology books. But we had to think about the long term changes that steadily, uh, alter the environment and kill off the species that have found their, their niche within that environment. That's, that's a little harder to, to comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at our five examples here. Uh, the, first one is the Ordovician extinction event. Uh, and this occurred somewhere between 490 million years ago and 445 million years ago. And the idea is that, you know, the world before that was the Cambrian period. It was basically multicellular life evolving over the course of millions of years. But what happened was this catastrophe that some think was caused by cosmic rays from outer space. Now, let's qualify this. This isn't like cosmic rays from some science uh, fiction novel or a comic book or anything like that. This is energetic subatomic particles that, let's say they were blasting us today, right? Mm -hmm. They would damage our DNA and probably cause cancer within us. But more importantly, they could also affect the atmosphere. And that's what the theory is that happened here in the Ordovician period, was that they affected the atmosphere... They uh, basically turned coastal habitats into deserts, and most of the life forms that were out there, these multicellular life forms, were marine-based. They were living in water, so their entire habitat was destroyed, and we see the Ice Age, because the world is covered in these, you know, cloud cover, basically, that makes everything colder, and it freezes. So we see a massive, uh, not a complete reset, but uh, it's kind of kind of a massive reboot mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. on Earth. Yeah, yeah. L- life is just finally getting to the point where it's evolving uh, to you know a couple different cells, mm-hmm. and and it gets blasted with ice. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to I guess to think about these two in terms of uh, like economic comparisons. You know, there's an economic downturn. And, uh, and what happens? Suddenly, um, you know, a number of positions have to disappear at a particular place of work, mm-hmm. uh, which leads to different, to roles changing, uh, which leads sometimes to bigger opportunities for those that remain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, but it changes the, the playing field. Yeah, and there's, you know, again, let's keep this in mind, too. There's not a lot of control that any of the players <laughs> yeah. involved have over this. So we get to the second one, then, which is the late Devonian extinction. And this is 415 million years to 358 million years ago. And the basic cause of this one was what we were mentioning earlier, invasive species. So the world at the time, it's often referred to, uh, as as Anna Lee had talked to me about in our interview, as the age of fishes. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some plant life on land, but for the most part, again, we're talking about marine life. You get this combination of earthquakes and volcanoes that start pushing habitats into different uh, areas of the world together. 
together and the habitats smash together because of these natural disasters. And you get these inland seas where predators start taking over habitats that they didn't previously exist in, right? So massive uh, invasive species take over and then kill off 75% of the species that are existing in these previous uh, ecosystems. Uh, from an economic standpoint, you can think of this as, uh, say, the merger of two companies. Suddenly yeah. <laughs> there are redundancies that have to have to be dealt with. These Both of these uh, these individuals have the same job. Which one is going to eat the other one? Yeah, um, yeah. and, and l- let's stick with this metaphor. I like this. So uh, new species do not evolve for a long time after this Devonian extinction period. Mm-hmm. So from this <laughs> corporate uh, perspective, you, there's no new jobs being created, mm-hmm. right? There's no new positions. There's not a lot of creativity within the organization. That leads us to the Permian period, which is 299 million to 251 million years ago. And this is the big uh, is the, they refer to it as the Great Dying, which yeah. I, I particularly like that name. It sounds like some Norwegian black metal band. Yeah, it's pretty uh, gothic sounding. Yeah, yeah uh, but this is basically the mega volcano era, right? Mm-hmm. So the world is all getting pushed together again. There's these land masses that are basically forming what we call Pangaea, and there's this massive climate change and mega volcanoes. And the megavolcanoes are belching out these toxic gases that go into the atmosphere. Again, you know, very similar to the cosmic rays creating these, this cloud cover, uh, 95% of the species on the planet die off. 95. It takes 75 to qualify as a mass extinction. Got 20 more percent here. No wonder it's called the great dying. Yeah, like this is... This is one of those examples where you can say it came pretty close, mm-hmm. like five percent wiped remaining. everything yeah. out. Yeah. So the world afterwards is basically the, the ocean becomes acidified. We've got uh, what we would think of today as pollution, but mm-hmm. it's you know caused by mega volcanoes and and uh, this, this is this horrible gas that's everywhere in the air and uh, effects that are similar to what we would call global warming today. Yeah. But I the, mean, five percent survival though. That's kind of like the the, the corporation has been reduced to. A mere startup. Again, right, you know, right, yeah. Back to the garage. And this is what the startup consists of. This is, this is, Anna Lee uh, really spelled this out for me and I, and I liked it. Uh, she said that some uh, scientists refer to this era as slime world because <laughs> uh, the main creatures of the, the 5% that survived are what we would refer to as slimes. Uh, so you've got these slimes that are moving around, this black sludge basically, right? And then crocodiles. So this it's not a friendly place. It's this <laughs> barely breathable habitat full of slime and crocodiles. Uh, and that goes on until we've got the early Triassic period, 250 million to 220 million years ago. And this is where we start seeing the early evolution of dinosaurs. Again, megavolcanoes come into play. They start blowing up, pushing continents around, and... You know, uh, habitats are destroyed. Okay, so as these habitats get pushed together, food webs, you know, the, the relationships between these different animals and, and, the, and the flora within their regions start unraveling, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Annalise's book, she has a, a great example of, of the one animal that survives this. This is, this is the survivor that we should look to as an example for our own case of living through the sixth mass extinction. It's called the Lystrosaurus. 
And it's basically, this is the description from the book, an ancestral, or, or no, maybe you added this one, an ancestral shovel lizard. I added the shovel lizard. Part, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that description. Shovel lizard. So basically its face is a shovel, yeah. right? Uh, that survived, it kind of looked like, it was about the size of a pig. Mm-hmm. And it was mammal-like reptile, right? It had like strands of hair and stuff like that, but I believe it qualified as a reptile. Uh, and, but here's how it survived. Because of its shovel face, it was able to burrow its way underground and survive all of these, you know, pushing around of, uh, land masses and the, 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 the various, you know, problems with breathing in the air and also the, 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 the invasive species. And uh, so what they do is they basically go underground and they have this special way of breathing so that they could breathe really well underground with low oxygen levels, uh, even if there was dusty airborne contaminants. So they adapted, essentially, to survive in this world. Uh, and, uh, the other thing that was really fascinating about the Listrosaurus, not a picky eater. We basically oh. eat anything it came across. So, you know, as it's shoveling around under the earth, I'm picturing, uh, uh, what are those, uh, creatures from D&D that, that like, uh, tunnel around there, like called land sharks or something like that. Oh yeah, I'm trying to, I'm, now I'm thinking of all the different underdark, uh, creatures. Yeah. Umber Hulk. Yeah. Listrosaurus is a good D and D monster, though. We should add that to some yeah. of these campaigns someday. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the um, the idea too that it, it survived because it was essentially a generalist. Because that mm-hmm. also kind of uh, that kind of falls into the whole uh, economic corporate structure as well, and one that I often fall back on when I when I uh, you know start thinking about uh, you know where I am in a particular place. Sometimes I'm thinking, all right, I you know make sure that I, I don't have all my my tools in one basket, you know. Uh, exactly. Trying to be a journalist because Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the Listrosaurus for you. It, it's uh, the the long term employee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who do you want to be when the uh, when the cuts come? Do you want to be the the social media specialist or the Tumblr specialist? You know? <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, it, I like that. It, you know, sometimes it can behoove you to specialize, but don't specialize so much that you're the uh, you know. You're essentially this one uh, creature that has survived to live in a very particular, uh, you know, tidal pool. Mm-hmm. And then when that tidal pool dries up, you're toast. You're the first one to get the axe. Indeed. Yeah, in mass extinctions and in corporations. Life lessons from stuff to blow your mind. <laughs> uh, all, so then we get to the one. This is the one that everybody knows about, right? This oh, yeah. is the fifth one. This is the one we all think of. It's the Cretaceous period, 145 million to 65 million years ago. This is... The meteorite impact striking, uh, basically destroying, uh, a, there's this massive impact in what today is Baja, California, uh, and it kills off the dinosaurs, right? This is the like land before time, uh, Jurassic Park, the one that's really hammered it into our heads. And uh, there's an interesting thing here, though, that's going on in Annalie's book. She says that between uh, scientists that study this particular era, there's some contention that it, yes, there was definitely some kind of impact in that area of the world. And yes, that probably contributed to, you know, a, an extinction of, of certain species. But they also think that there were some more megavolcanoes going on, hmm. uh, more likely in India. And that uh, it, it's easy to think about, again, like, let's get to this idea of it's real easy to think about this huge asteroid striking Earth and just oh, killing everybody in one fell swoop, right? But it 
Yeah, those that were in the general area of impact were killed instantly. But that's not where we're seeing the extinction. That's not where these 75% of species are dying off. It is the world afterwards because you get this, again, slow process of climate change, makes it really hard for plants to grow, subsequently makes it really hard for animals to find something to eat, and then the you know carnivorous animals who are eating the other animals subsequently don't have a lot to eat. So again, food, food webs are unraveling. There's just not a lot left. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, uh, for the most part, with these the volcano examples and the um, and the impact examples, it's, it's less about getting trapped in the lava flow or getting hit by the thing that uh, collides with the earth as much as the material that's ejected into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, nuclear winter scenario where, uh, where there's just less sunlight reaching the earth. Yeah, it's interesting, like, uh, I'm thinking about disaster movies right mm-hmm. now, right? And, like, we have this sort of, uh, obsession with them in, in, in popular culture right now. Like, uh, I think San Andreas comes out this weekend, which is the movie that features The Rock rescuing his family from, uh, <laughs> the, the big one in California. Okay. Uh, it, and, um, yeah, the, it, yeah, you know, when there's a big earthquake like that, of course, lots of people are going to die. But the after effects are what's going to really affect the the, the larger community, the entire ecosystem of the planet. Yeah, especially when you start seeing seeing these these the spiraling collapse as the the webs begin to uh, to unravel. Yeah. All right, we've uh, taken you on just a roller coaster ride through the, uh, the the five extinction events that have occurred so far. Uh, and now we are going to discuss the sixth great extinction event, uh, one that uh, we may be living in right now. That may not, uh, you know, consists of some sort of cosmic calamity just wiping things out, uh, but rather the slow process that has uh, a lot, if not everything, to do with uh, the human civilization. Yeah, and that's the key. Like with those other ones, it's very much about the slow. You know, again, a mass extinction requires two million years for mm-hmm. the breakdown. Um, but if we look at the sort of longitudinal, uh, what, what is called the background extinction rate. So this is basically uh, all the time species are dying out, right? Uh-huh. Not because of mass extinctions. It's just part of the natural order of things. You know, species die, new species come come forth. Uh, and... There's, they're always going on, but the background extinction rate has been higher. There's been a huge spike in numbers since the Cretaceous period. So actually, if you go and you look at, uh, at our How Stuff Works articles on mass extinction, surviving mass extinction, uh, things that are causing the sixth mass extinction, there's some interesting stuff in there as well. And uh, our colleague Jonathan Strickland from uh, Tech Stuff and Forward Thinking actually wrote one of those pieces. And he cited a statistic that says that uh, the background extinction rate for species is somewhere between 100 to 1,000 times greater than it should be. Uh, and he uh, cited Harvard biologist Edward O. Wilson as being somebody who estimated that we're looking at 30,000 species going extinct every year. Uh, and so, you know, we're still under the 75% threshold range, but that's faster than normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, another another statistic here is that the background rate is happening uh, there's, on the average it's 0.1 extinctions per million species per year. Okay, this is this is how uh, people who study this look at it. It's actually quantified as E over MSY extinctions per million species per year. Um, but the current rate 
is somewhere, again, like I said, between a hundred and a thousand. So we're far over what, you know, the average is there. So, okay. So we know that our background extinction rate is significantly higher than it should be, right? Uh, let's, let's take a look in the same way that we looked at those uh, other extinctions at the world before, you know, what we had and, you know, what, what we're looking at now. So, you know, all, remember it, all it takes is 75% species in 2 million years. Uh, and we're looking at, you know, there's like roughly, you know, five major signs, but there's all kinds of other external reasons that could cause our mass extinctions, right? And do you want to talk a little bit about the age of man and how, yeah. you know, we're coming into that? Yeah, I think this is a, you know, vital, um, piece of the puzzle here because, uh, uh, many people refer to this age that we're living in now, this age. Potentially of the, of the 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 sixth great extinction event is the um, Anthropocene era, the the age of man, because uh, humans are now the dominant force of change on Earth. And we're not just augmenting our physical selves, but uh, but uh, we're also augmenting the land around us, from ancient aqu- aqueducts and cloud seeding, um, you know, on up until um, you know the agricultural revolution. Uh, even if you go back, um, you know, even before agriculture, and you just look at us killing off the mammoths, right? Mm-hmm. We're hunting the mammoths, and then when we kill off the mammoths, it allows uh, birch to grow unconsumed and erase much of the grassland. Uh, and then, uh, and these, and the trees then change the color of the landscape, making it much darker, so that it absorbs more of the sun's heat, and this heats up the air. Um, and so, so this process would have added to natural climate change, making it harder for the mammoths to cope and helping the birch trees spread further, which yeah. I, I, I love this example because it shows that even even primitive humans just doing the most primitive thing possible, just spearing a bunch of mammoths. Right. Yeah. In doing that, we we disrupt the balance and we begin kind of terraforming the world into a new form. It's the classic invasive species conundrum, basically. Yeah, because right? we are the big invasive species. We are. And not only are we an invasive spe- invasive species, but we are also moving other life forms out of their natural habitats mm-hmm. and into other ones because we find them aesthetically pleasing. Right? Yeah. So, for instance, uh, an example that is often used is the kudzu plant in uh, Southern America, where we live right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was brought here, and it's taking over chunks of the entire United States since the late 1800s because people brought it here, thought that it was appealing, and now it's everywhere, yeah. right? Like. Man, I can't like walk down the street in Atlanta without seeing, you know, a, a house or, or a, a wall overgrown with kudzu. Uh, there's even, yeah, I'm just, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, even some of the the tolerated things in our uh, neck of the woods, the English ivy. People love mm. English ivy, but it's well, it's harmful. It you know kills trees. It, it's uh, it's invasive. Here's one of my favorite examples. I actually did an episode about this for Brain Stuff. Uh, raccoons. Yeah. So um, the this is uh, I'll try to make this brief. But this is a perfect example of human beings causing an invasive species problems. So a problem. So in Japan in the 1970s, there was this cartoon uh, it featured this cute cartoon raccoon. Okay. Okay. And Japanese importers said, "Wow, like people really love this cartoon. Let's start importing raccoons <laughs> from the United States. They're going to make great pets." And of course, they're not domesticated animals. So these families would go out and buy raccoons, and then you know they were feral animals basically, and they mm-hmm. couldn't domesticate them. They didn't. They couldn't live with them. So the raccoons either escaped or they were let out. Right now, Japan is facing this huge crisis of raccoon proportions huh. <laughs> because they have raccoons all throughout uh, the forests in Japan, and they're um, 
in particular a problem because they're attacking the historical landmarks in Japan, like uh, temples and such. Um, not attacking. It's not like these raccoons are like <laughs> rising up. It's not Planet of the Raccoons. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, essentially as an invasive invasive species moving in on this territory and destroying this uh, the habitat. They're destroying the the buildings that are around them. They're burrowing into them, making their new homes there. And Japan has this huge problem where they're just constantly trying to catch and unfortunately kill all these raccoons because they just can't. The, the population is growing so quickly. And this is just since the seventies that they they can't deal with it. It's the raccoons just pushing it out. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to invasive species and the. Uh, the it brings to mind the earlier examples we were talking about where you had to have like masses of land converging and drifting apart mm. for these kind of uh, invasive situations to take place. Yeah. Uh, literally, mountains were being moved to facilitate this. But uh, humans have so altered life on this earth that they just uh, do it by just moving around, by transporting yeah. materials, by, uh, by you know, sometimes accidentally, such as um, the lionfish being an example. That, sure. Well, that one's kind of a combination, because on one hand, you have people saying, oh, the lionfish is beautiful, I want to keep it in an aquarium. Uh, and then you also have people, uh, you just have international shipping affecting it, because even though it's a beautiful, delicate-looking creature, it's extremely hardy, and it can survive, you know, stuck away in the bilge mm-hmm. of a ship. Mm-hmm. So... On purpose, by accident, we end up just uh, mixing everything around, and uh, and a number of species, a lot of species, are going to be unable to flow with that change. So this is a huge contributing factor to the, this this current mass extinction that we're living in. It's you know it's happened before with invasive species moving in on other habitats, but in this case, it's you know often be, because of our intervention that we're, we're moving these things around and and knocking out the, the the ecosystem that's in place yeah I mean just to, to a couple other facts to just drive home how much we have influenced the world um, by 1995 at least 83 percent of Earth's land surface had been directly affected by humans Wow and as of uh, 2005 humans had built so many dams that nearly six times as much water was held in storage as flowed freely through rivers. So, okay, listeners out there are probably thinking, okay, these guys are on the blame the human train. Uh, <laughs> it's all our fault, right? It, yeah, you're right. I am, at least. But <laughs> Well, it's kind of a compliment, right? I mean, because right. human, humans, you're, we are highly successful at what we set out to do exactly but it's uh the thing we set out to do was like by its very nature um like world shaping and world destroying and when we get to it this may be what saves us as well yeah but there are other factors that are going on too that aren't necessarily caused by humans another is that our oceans are changing Mm -hmm. uh again it's 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 habitat loss but it's not on land right so there's these massive changes that are happening so for example half the coral reefs on earth have been destroyed, uh, and about a third of mangrove forests. Those are those like underground, uh, underwater uh, forests that you you know you see like uh, uh, manatees swimming through right. or something. I don't know. Uh, th- th- those have been destroyed as well, right? They're they're home to land and sea animals. You're thinking of uh, I- I'm thinking of like otters. I'm assuming. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not a marine biologist, but mm-hmm. some kind of uh, air breathing land animal that that works within this ecosystem together with the, the marine life that. It's there, right? Uh, and in addition, okay, this is human beings. <laughs> Overfishing has led to two-thirds of the world's marine fisheries being tapped to their limits. So again, 
we're messing with things a little bit, but there's there's stuff going on at, at a, a long term rate that we're not necessarily affecting either. Right. And another one uh, here is, of course, the loss of biodiversity, which mm-hmm. has everything to do with with agriculture. Uh, we we uh, agriculture, of course, is by its very nature. An, an artificial, you know, manipulation of, of vegetation to say, hey, we really like that uh, little potato crop that's grown over there. We really like these red berries. They're pretty right. delicious. Let's have an entire portion of land that grows nothing but that in an artificially maintained scenario. Yeah. And, uh, and then you end up depending on one particular strain of that species and that becomes the dominant, um, uh, you know, basically the dominant life form on huge uh, pieces of land. Yeah, Inali, uh uses as an example for for this. Uh, you know, it seems like a long time ago, but the the, the Irish potato famine of mm-hmm. 1845, within the grand scheme of two million years, it's not a whole lot of time has passed. But she uses as an example to show how um, habitat loss and extinction, or at least uh, death, you know, by famine. Uh, can be caused by two things that are going on. You've got a, a, a lower population, right? And then there's class divisions that are going on that are sort of deciding who gets access to the food, right? Mm-hmm. And then that subsequently leads to airborne fungus that spreads disease and so on. So, you know, we're really looking at uh, industrial farming nowadays as playing a huge role in this. It's replacing this diverse population of plants that we have with a single crop that we're raising for, you know, the purposes of selling them in the grocery store, basically. Which means you're highly susceptible to one uh, microbe, one disease coming along and just wiping that out. What if something takes out corn? Yeah, because we increasingly depend on uh, one strain of corn. I mean, that's why there are efforts to to maintain these uh, additional strains of corn in uh, protected places so that we have that genetic diversity to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. That's scary just on its own, right? But um, let's add a fourth one to the mix. And this is, again, this is uh, not a human human error uh, here. This is the one that we know from the Cretaceous period, the asteroid impact, right? This is your Armageddon. This is your deep impact movie scenario. So um, we're actually due for one of these. NASA yeah. essentially says that asteroids that are, you know, that, that are big enough to cause the Cretaceous period extinction event, they're supposed to strike the Earth every million years and our due dates come up. We haven't had one. And um, so we're just kind of crossing our fingers, <laughs> waiting to get hit by a big rock from outer space. The one of the, the thing about this particular um, threat, this particular extinction uh, event scenario, is that we increasingly have the ability to 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 track these uh, these near Earth objects. We increasingly mm-hmm. have the ability to launch the kind of countermeasures that could prevent them once spotted. Uh, neither neither of those efforts are are funded to the extent they should be. Right. Which is crazy when you realize that that of all these things like these this is in, in the movies there's always a hero saving the world, doing yeah. something heroic to save the world. Historically, like no living actual person has ever saved the world. <laughs> but this is a scenario yeah. where we could like like a particular effort, a particular organization could save the world or a whole lot of people in it from annihilation by a near earth object. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Yeah, no, we're not. I mean, uh w- 
that's an episode for another time, but obviously, you know, the NASA and other national space organizations aren't getting the funding they need to mm-hmm. sort of uh, defend us, I yeah. guess, at large. But um, this is, you know, something that Anna Lee gets into later is that outer space is really going to be uh, the long-term goal here for us. Development of travel through outer space, paying attention to what's going on around the planet Earth, mm-hmm. that's going to be a huge factor in making sure that the human species survives. Yeah, and then also in terms of just like moving up the Kardashev scale, like mm. we have to master the planet mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in a in a real and meaningful sense, and not just oops, we screwed everything else up on the planet. So uh, there's a, a fifth one here that I think is a pretty big one, and you know we'd be remiss if we ignored it, which is the rising temperature caused by dun 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 global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to get into the debates of its origin. You know, obviously there's a lot of conflicting reports back and forth of what scientists say or politicians say about this one way or the other. But let's just uh, stick with this one fact, okay? So. It, all it takes is a shift of one degree Celsius, which is f- for us in America, one point degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. 1.8, sorry, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That alone would lead to 30% of Earth's species being wiped out forever. So, uh, you know, depending on where you stand on global warming, just know that, you know, all it takes is that one little nudge yeah. on the temperature scale and boom, it's just... Thirty percent gone. Yeah, because again, like ev- so many creatures, essentially live in a you know a, a metaphorical tidal pool, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take much to make that pool just vanish entirely. So you've got a couple uh, examples that are like the asteroid one, outer space kind of cosmic events. Let's yeah. let's let's think a little bigger. Let's think Jack Kirby here. So okay. <laughs> so uh, what have we got? Uh, well, uh, f- for starters, if a sufficiently large nearby star were to burn out, the resulting hypernova could theoretically blast the Earth with enough gamma radiation to destroy our ozone layer, and that would expose us to deadly doses of solar radiation. So that's. Uh, that's a potential factor there. So, um, okay, so another reason for us to uh, be paying more attention to what's going on in outer space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this would be an, an example of one that would be less uh, uh, less less easily diverted. You know, yeah. It's not a oh, matter yeah. of incoming object. Can mm-hmm. we just sort of nudge it off course? Mm-hmm. But obviously, the more we know about it, the the, the better position we are. Uh, to understand what's happening, then maybe we would be able to devise some means to shield the planet. Mm. Uh, another, another similar uh, event, uh, there's an orange dwarf dubbed uh, Gliese 710, and it poses uh, another threat. Uh, astronomers predict that this rogue star may barrel into our corner of the galaxy roughly 1.5 million years from now, so we're, we're looking out yeah. a little. Um, shredding the Oort cloud on the outskirts of our solar system and pelting us with comets formed from the impact. Okay, so it's not the the star itself, but it's the resulting comets that are going to basically hit us like mortar fire. Yeah, Uh, basically. (laughs) Okay. And indeed the stress that we put on leaving the planet. And that's in roughly 7.6 billion years, the sun will burn through the last of its fuel and swell into a red giant. And in this form, the sun's diameter will encompass Earth's current orbit and vaporize the planet. Awesome. Now, before that occurs, uh, however, scientists predict that the sun's uh, slow expansion will raise temperatures and boil the oceans dry, uh, essentially turning Earth into a desert world in a mere 500 million years. Okay. And some estimations uh, predict that the Earth uh, 
unbound by the sun's decreased mass, will actually then drift out into an outer orbit, uh, safe from the expansion of the sun. But again, yeah, what the catastrophic effects there are, are pretty staggering, like the oceans freezing solid, uh, and you know, life on Earth consisting of only you know some creatures huddled around a, uh, a hyperthermal vent. So we'll have have to have gotten off the planet well before then. Yeah, or fi- or figure out a way to move it, which yeah, is a, a, right. another sort of far future possibility. Like, what can you do in terms of moving us, moving the planet, and rolling with these long-term uh, cosmic uh, catastrophes that are just a part of the life cycle of a solar system? Okay, so let's get into next what we'll talk about is how we're going to survive this thing, what strategies are in place. And in particular, Newitz's book really, you know, focuses on this. And the, the title of her book is, is, um, uh, useful here. Scatter, adapt, and remember. Those are the strategies at hand. We've, uh, we've talked about the five extinction events that have occurred. We've talked about the sixth that we're uh, involved in right now, the steady, um, a transformation of the planet into a less uh, hospitable form, as well as some of the you know truly cosmic uh, uh, cataclysms that uh, potentially await us, and in some cases definitely await us in the far future. So, all right, looking at all of this death and destruction that's mm-hmm. happened on Earth, that is happening on Earth, and that will happen on Earth really makes me kind of back up and, you know, you hear the term cosmic horror get thrown a Mm -hmm. lot, uh, especially in the wake of Lovecraft's contribution to literature. This is cosmic horror. When you think about this on the scale and the, the magnitude that it's happening at, it makes you feel utterly insignificant. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Yeah. I mean, I actually, when we were uh, researching this, I kept thinking back to, um, uh, to Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and in some of their stories, like talking about like, oh, first came the lizard men and then came the, you know, this cosmic entity, you know, just talking about like life forms that were inhabiting, uh, some, you know, fictional version of the earth and in dealing with such like long periods of time that, that, that human life and human accomplishments were just so insignificant. Yeah. And yeah. that you kind of feel the same way when you start looking at these extinction events that have come before and the extinction events to come. Absolutely. It reminds me of, um, have you ever heard of, uh, this, he's an English professor, uh, well-known Marxist philosopher, I guess you could call him Frederick Jameson. Hmm, Uh, and he has this, this isn't an exact quote, but this is one of these things that they, they throw at you in graduate school, uh, is that, uh, the apocalypse is easier for us to imagine something like this, right? Mm -hmm. Than living in a post-capitalist society. So it's easier for us to imagine this mass extinction, this world without us, these uh, huge scenarios where we're completely insignificant than, than his, this is his Marxist argument, obviously, than, mm-hmm. than, a, than a world that's like a, that, that's not based on this sort of capitalist uh, economy that we currently live within, right? So like, uh, the, I guess the counterpoint to him would be like the Star Trek world where uh, everybody's got access to the, the, the replicators and they can just make food and there's no problems. They're able to fly away from their uh, mass extinction events and perfectly survive them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it kind of plays into our, our love affair with Apocalypse, right? That we are uh, mm-hmm. often drawn to these tales of some cataclysmic it- some cataclysmic event uh, setting the, the the reboot button on uh, on life as we know it. Mm. Um, you know, you, if, if nothing else, you you know, you have a bad day at work, and you're like, oh, I wish uh, an asteroid would hit my uh, place right. of employment. Right? Yeah, right. Well, turns out all that cosmic horror 
isn't necessarily as bad as we think it is. Okay. We're not as insignificant as it feels. So from Annalie Newitz's book, there are some recommendations for how we might, you know, look back and learn from species like the Lystrosaurus that had survived uh, extinctions and okay. learn from them. Like directly, like live underground. We and, could, and we breathe. could like make yeah. shovel faces and mm-hmm. attach them to to our heads and just dig underground. Okay. I, I don't know that that would help us with every type of extinction event, especially when the sun swallows the earth in a couple million well, years. Well, you know, I think we should we should uh, consider even the most mad science of, yeah. uh, of options. Well, definitely we'll have the shovelhead division get on it. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time that we're, in, in our ideal world, we have taxes funding two things, NASA and uh, shovelheads. You know, I feel like this was a sadly um, un- unexplored to a certain extent, uh, plot in uh, the second season of American Horror Story. <laughs> you had the uh, the mad scientist character, who I loved, uh, and he was making these mutants. Yeah, this and is he the was, James Cromwell Yes, guy. the James Cromwell character. Yeah. Uh, his character's name eludes me, but, uh, yeah, like a former Nazi um, doctor, and he wanted to make this race of mutants that would survive the, right. atomic, the coming atomic apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I think we should keep all options on the table. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm writing down shovelhead. Okay. Shovelhead <laughs> mutants. Just consider it, everyone. But uh, in the more 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 immediately, what Newitz recommends is that we look at uh, her, her first phrasing for this is scattering. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, uh, the example for this is ethnic diasporas, right? So a, a diaspora, diaspora is a geographical dispersion of people separated from their homeland, right? And, mm-hmm. and one of the most often used examples of this is the Jewish diaspora um, that's told through the holiday of Passover, right? The story is passed on every generation. It's the story of Moses and the ten plagues within Egypt and how Jews fled from Egypt uh, for 40 years, wandering throughout the desert until they eventually found Israel. Right? So people are displaced. They're forced to go to different geographic corners of the earth. They're forced yeah. to, to a certain extent, merge with other cultures while also retaining some level of their own cultural identity. Mm -hmm. And so her recommendation is that this is something that we as a species, human beings, should start coming to terms with and and thinking about as a strategy, right? It's Mm -hmm. scattering, essentially, whether it is across the globe or out into the stars somewhere. Okay. Uh, And so even, you know, her recommendation here is, you know, look at Passover as an example, that even if whatever ethnic group or or species in this case uh, has unwillingly been torn apart by disastrous events or what have you, um, your children will remember where they came from hundreds of years down the road. Okay. So um, Passover has passed down this, this, this tradition of memory, essentially. Okay, so even though you were a mutated shovelhead creature mm-hmm. that we genetically modified to live on a, an extraterrestrial world, doesn't mean you can't celebrate Passover. Exactly. Yeah, yeah there'll be like a, a new holiday that the shovelheads can celebrate and and remember. Okay, you know uh, what life was like on Earth when we recorded ye old podcasts. Yeah, well, I think I love this idea because a lot of it is about just recognizing like. The change is part of life on Earth, like mm-hmm. an essential part. And you can't take any particular phase in evolution or even in human culture and say, this is, we want to stick right here. We don't want to draw any more right. cards into our hand and we don't want to discard. We want to stick with this hand. No, you have to keep playing the game. Uh, essentially what she's saying is, is exactly that, right? Like we can't just sit on our laurels and be satisfied with uh, 
the exact world that we live in now and think that that's going to go on forever mm-hmm. because it's not regardless of of extinction level events or not uh we have to change in order to survive it's just the ebb and flow of of nature and of humanity and indeed this is why so many uh scientists uh most notably Stephen Hawking argue that the long-term survival uh, of human life depends on our ability to expand beyond our planet to expand beyond our solar system i mean even if you're just talking about the just ultimate long game uh expanding beyond the universe itself uh so in that sense, the answer is, hey, if you really want to survive humans, you have to transcend humanity and become some sort of, uh, you know, uh, multiverse walking god species. Mm-hmm. And this gets into the, you know, her second argument, essentially, which is the adaptation one, right? Mm-hmm. We need to adapt. We have to change. We have to, first of all, like, <laughs> uh, come to grips with that idea in and of itself that we have to change in order to survive. Um, and and. This isn't just, you know, we're not just talking about, like, becoming gods here. We're talking about, like, uh, making just small changes in our Yeah, realizing what's not working. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Daniel Quinn, in his book uh, Ishmael, uh, which is often, uh, you know, the the book about the talking gorilla Mm. that that tells us what's uh, wrong with human culture and uh, and how bad agriculture is, but it makes a lot of strong, compelling arguments. And one of the... um, Examples that's thrown out is that uh, that human civilization as we know it is like uh, uh, a guy in an old timey uh, uh, airplane. You know the kind that would push off yeah. the side of a hill, yeah. and the yeah. guy's in there and he's pedaling as hard as he can, and he's like pulling levers to flap the wings, and it's not flying; it's plummeting, but he feels like it's flying. Right. <laughs> but uh, but but part of our responsibility is to realize, hey, the the plane that we think is soaring and flying and ascending, it's actually descending, and then realizing. And then making the realization we can we can do things to change this airplane. We can make it a little less of a, a lodestone and maybe a little more yeah. of a of an actual vehicle. And and you know t- touching on this is of course you know we'll, we'll get this is touching back into the the preachy sort of global warming aspect of this conversation, mm-hmm. which is that you know we really have to come to terms with the fact that human beings are causing climate change. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. And how we're going to re- reduce that, basically, right? Reduce greenhouse emissions. They have to be reduced by uh, 50% by 2050. That's theoretically within our lifetimes. Uh, has to happen for us to uh, stave off that, that, that one degree shift in temperature change that mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. Um, and there's easy ways to do this. I'm not going to spend, you know, the, the rest of our time here just rattling it all off. But, you know, the, look it up online. Combine trips in your car, you know, carpooling. Buy more efficient cars. Adjust your thermostat in the winter. Bike to work. Recycle. All of these things can, you know, essentially help with reducing uh, greenhouse emissions. Uh, basically, just just look at this one example here. So if every American replaced one incandescent bulb with one of those energy-saving ones, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions would be the equivalent of taking 800,000 cars off the road. So that's, you know, a small thing. We, we talked about this Lovecraftian sense of insignificance, but that's a relatively small thing that everybody can do that's going to, you know slightly stave off the, yeah. the, the the coming apocalypse. Yeah, that's not going through life with a gas mask or some sort of a weird alien tentacle creature like attached to your spinal column or anything. Mm-hmm. That's that's very doable. 
Yeah, and you know, uh, Newitz touches on this in her book as well by talking about these. Uh, she, she went and, and talked to a lot of really interesting kind of future-oriented scientists at universities around the country. One in particular was looking at how we could uh, use photosynthesis as like a, a, a method that we could replicate within our. Uh, solar cells, essentially, by building artificial photosynthesis. Uh, it's called biomimesis. Hmm. And the practice is basically you're imitating biological life forms to make artificial systems as, as efficient, you know, as oh, the yeah, living yeah. ones. Yeah, bi- biomimicry, yeah. Yeah, so there's this idea that, you know, if we can switch over to some kind of uh, energy system that utilizes photosynthesis instead of, you know, carbon-emitting fuels such uh, that, that, you know, we'd be in much better shape. And they, they, she even looked into this... Um, there's this algae called cyanobacteria, I believe, uh, and it, it, there's this uh, scientist, I believe it's at the University of Washington, that's looking at mutated versions of this that release hydrogen instead of oxygen, you know, like, like, like normal plant life does. And it would allow for this clean fuel production because you would have hydrogen being released, you'd be utilizing the hydrogen for your energy, and the only byproduct it would be releasing is water, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, so we're, we're talking about biofuels, essentially, here. Okay, so we touched upon this earlier, that memory is really important to our survival, right? The idea that, yes, we can scatter as a species, whether it's across the world or it's across the planets of the universe. But there needs to be some kind of built-in memory system for the human species to learn from its previous mistakes, learn from history, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I can see it sort of being a, a two-sided thing. Like one is just the pure vanity of saying, "Hey, this is like we have a continued, um, mm-hmm. continued line here, uh, and and we have the memories of what came before." But then on the other hand, science itself is about knowing, you know, what has come before, having this accumulated knowledge and knowing what works and doesn't work. Yeah. And for humanity to survive, I mean, it's it, it, we're at the point now where science is essentially humanity, if not something greater. Yeah, I mean. Uh, this begs the question, why do we want to survive, <laughs> right? Like, why, what is our urge to make it through this sixth mass extinction? Why do we need to do that? I would argue that, you know, so that our people endure for the long term and that, you know, that the, the legacy of our species is carried on. All these memories are, are brought throughout time, this understanding of the world, this understanding of uh, ourselves. It, it's not lost, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it comes down to, to two things. I mean, on one hand, you have like the basic genetic mission in any organism is to pass its seed on and see the continuant, uh, continuation of that particular genetic line. And so far, so that becomes extrapolated in this quest for the survival of the human race. But then also it, it ties into the, the problem of immortality that, mm-hmm. that on, yeah. you know, on a very basic level, a lot of what goes on in our culture is about us struggling with the reality that we're each individual, each person listening to this today is going to die. Yeah, and, right. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea that we as individuals are going to die is horrible to think of. The idea that we as a species are all going to die is practically unthinkable. Yeah. Or is it? I don't know. I guess the thing is, it's like you can come to terms with your your own personal mortality, mm-hmm. but it, it can make a bit more sense if there is a larger cultural, uh, even species-wide immortality, because maybe, right. just maybe, your memory could survive in there. Maybe you'd be one of the mm-hmm. few lucky individuals, like, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be an Aristotle, you'll be, uh, <laughs> Uh, you'll be a Confucius. You'll be somebody whose name actually resonates 
uh, to a meaningful meaningful degree throughout the the long term. Yeah, you'll have a legacy. Yeah, uh, and so like let's let's pull back from this for a second and just look at like a, a, a I say small I'm going to say smaller example, but it's actually for a much bigger animal than us. Okay, so whales. Mm-hmm. Take whales for example. Uh, Memory is important to all animal survival, and whales are a perfect example of this. Right? They teach one another the maps for their migration patterns throughout generations. This Uh is just a simple example of why memory is important. It doesn't have to do necessarily with the vanity of wanting to have a legacy, right, and be remembered forever. Although I can certainly relate to that. I'm I'm sure most human beings have a certain amount of ego inside of them that that resonates with that, right? Right. But uh, more importantly, just this idea that, like, this is the route to survival. This is the way that we've done this. This is the way to go. And it will, get, you know, lead to the continuation of our family and of our species. Yeah, this is the way you use your shovel head to dig under exactly, the mud. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, when the yeah, gotta, you, right. You can't just expect them to know how to shovel their way <laughs> under the earth with their face. So, all right. So, Newitz has got these two recommendations that she really advocates for at the end of her book. Okay. And I think these these are uh, kind of the, where she's a. Uh, Saying something new, saying something that hasn't necessarily been brought to the community before. And the, the, the two things are this, that we as a species need to invest more in our cities. Uh, and I'll, t- I'll explain more about that later. That's the first one. And the second is what we've been hinting at all along, which is we need to explore beyond this planet. Because mm-hmm. no doubt about it, sometime, whether it's in the next hundred years or the next 15 million years, there is going to be an event that's going to wipe out life on earth. Uh, so the city part, this is a really interesting thing. So check, this is a great statistic that she pulled out. Uh, in the past decade, okay, so we're just talking about like from 2005 to now, the number of people on earth that live in cities has surpassed those that live outside of them. I, I didn't expect that when I read that in her book. I, th- I would have thought that there were more people living in rural communities, but I guess not. Uh, and it's, it's expected to rise. Uh, United States, uh, sorry, the United Nations Population Division estimates that 67% of humanity is going to live in urban areas by 2050. So, you know, that's why she's advocating we really need to figure out a way to make our cities sustainable, right? So that means the cities need to be able to sustain damage, such as from earthquakes? Yep. They, you need to be able to feed everyone in that, that city. You need the city to actually uh, uh, be less uh, susceptible to the ravages of disease, mm-hmm. which, of course, cities have, uh, you know, since really the emergence of, of major metropolitan areas, have served as, as uh, incubators, incubators yeah, yeah, for diseases such as, uh, as syphilis. Mm-hmm. And then there's what we were talking about earlier, which is that they, they have to offer sustainable energy to their citizens, right? So ah, yes. this idea that we were talking about earlier about biofuels and you know utilizing photosynthesis, whatever it is, whatever method that we end up using for, for clean energy that's sustainable and that we can keep using it for a long period of time, cities have to figure out a way to make that happen, right? Mm. Um, they can't exist without agriculture. Uh, and they're also, is, you know, so we can't just, you know, uh, abandon rural areas because right. we, we, we need them as well. They, so yeah, we need the, the food that comes from them. Mm-hmm. That's how you feed the cities. So there needs to be, you know, cooperation between these communities. And then this is an interesting aspect that I hadn't thought about, but she points out that cities in and of themselves are monuments. They're constructs of human memory. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, our cities, depending on who's in power at the time that they're built, whether it's, you know, uh, the churches uh, or nationalistic uh, organizations or, or corporations, you see in the architecture throughout a city what was the dominant force at the time that it was built, right? Whether it's extravagant churches or uh, beautiful large buildings that are uh, built to sustain the government or uh, the skyscrapers that uh, we work in here in Atlanta, you know, working for big companies. You know, it. You know, when you look at the vanity that goes into a city, when you look at the uh, the disease incubation, when you look at the the energy drain, and uh, and the amount of uh, of energy it takes to feed individuals in it, I mean, it really makes it seem like the the city, the modern city, is kind of a, a tumor of human culture, like it's the the human culture as tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings to mind, uh, I believe it was in Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Where there's a, at one point one of the characters has a vision of of planets that are just nothing but like empty cities. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. Like where the the idea of city has just completely ravaged an ecosystem. Yeah, that's a classic Morrison thing that he mm-hmm. revisits over and over again. The the, the idea of uh, humans as disease, as cancer, and then subsequently using that uh, as, as a way to some somehow survive, right? Yeah. So like harnessing that somehow. Um, I think he had this story once. I don't I don't know if it was ever published, but the, where there was a, a person who had uh, had a tumor, I believe it was uh, in their lung, mm-hmm. and they they had learned they turned it into a familiar, like a magical familiar, <laughs> and so their 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 tumor was was helping them instead of hurting them. Hmm. So These interesting what, kind of metaphorical ideas, but yes. it's essentially the you know you know get, getting back to the the reality of Newitz's premise here. Like is, that's the argument. How do mm-hmm. you keep this this idea of city and this idea of of human civilization entirely? How does it become less of a disease and more of uh, a sustainable, like, hybrid existence? Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, the last one is essentially, you know, what we've been talking about all along here is that we, we need a long-term plan to get off planet Earth. That's it. Plain and simple. We've got to build. We've got to explore. We should probably be investing more in uh, simply just observing space around us, even if it's not, uh, you know, in terms of figuring out a way to propel ourselves outside of this galaxy or not. Like you were saying earlier, you know, just in terms of the asteroid impact thing, we need to be on top of our game with that. Especially as we increasingly play this long game of survival. I mean, just in terms of the odds, Mm -hmm. because we've been around such a short time. And we've seen the five extinction events that have preceded us. So in order to keep those odds going, to remain in the sort of, uh, you know, cosmic Vegas game of survival, uh, we've got to, we've got to, to learn to bend the rules to our favor. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I don't have a whole lot more to add to that other than that, you know, I think that if you want to know more about, uh, both her recommendations for making cities better and for coming up with long-term solutions for space travel. I would highly recommend reading her book. Again, it's a uh, scatter, adapt, and remember how humans will survive a mass extinction. And that's by Annalene Newitz. Uh, you can order it on Amazon, probably buy it in your local bookstore. Uh, I've been reading it off of my Kindle. Cool. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, a quick uh, run through the five extinction events that came before and uh, you know, preview of the ongoing extinction event and possible events to come and how we can survive it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out uh, those resources that we've discussed, that video, some of those How Stuff Works articles, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There you will find a landing page for this episode with those outgoing links. You'll also find a host of other podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and links out to social media accounts. 
And if you would like to add to the conversation, let us know what you think about mass extinctions, think we're right or wrong about what is potentially causing the current one that we're in, or have other solutions for us getting out of this one, let us know at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com or get in touch with us via social media. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.